Welcome to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. On this podcast, we journey through the devastating experience of the death of a child. Grief is seldom discussed openly in our culture, and the death of a child makes people feel even more uncomfortable. We approach the topic openly and honestly, speaking to people who have lost loved ones and experts who help care for them. Whether you are a parent experiencing loss or someone who wants to support another going through this tragedy, this podcast strives to offer hope and help. Welcome to episode 225 of Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. I'm Marcy Larson, Andy's mom. I know I say this all the time, but you really are going to love today's guest, Carla. And if you want to hear more from Carla after listening to this week's episode, I want you to go to her website. So her website is Carla. Helbert.com. So that's K-A-R-L-A-H-E-L-B-E-R-T.com. And I want you to go to that website because she is starting an educational series right here in January. So I want you to try to get signed up because I think it will offer you so much insight and hope if you do that. So I'm not going to take any more time to do an introduction right now because we did go a little long today. So Sit back and enjoy listening to Carla, Theo's mom. Thank you so much, Carla, for agreeing to come on the Always Andy's Mom podcast today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to talking because I got your name from somebody else who... Uh, yeah, you did. Yeah, I sure did. I sure did. And she sent me some information about you and I just started reading and I thought, oh my word, I think Carla would be perfect to have on the podcast. So here you are. Here I am. Here you are. So why don't you start out by just telling us a little bit about your son, Theo? Okay, so Theo would be now 18 years old, actually older than that. So his birthday is May 26th. Uh-huh. 2005 and he would have turned 18 well he still turned 18 on his birthday the next year he would be 19 and with that was a very long labor I will say 36 hours of labor with him wow yeah was he first baby for you he was the first baby Mm -hmm. and I have a daughter who's 15 now and I was just I was like this is gonna take at least 18 hours because you know what I knew right Usually a second baby is like half the time, and, and she only took like six hours, which was great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 36 to 6, that's quite the change, yeah. Yeah. When he was three months old, he was diagnosed with a brain tumor. Wow. So, you know, earlier when you were just saying we're going to talk a little bit, I'll tell a little bit about him. It was really a strange experience and and heartbreaking and sad. I mean, we had this baby who was beautiful. and Yeah, perfect. So his, his full name is Thelonious Luther Helbert Fegline, and most call him Theo. Okay. And he's actually named after Thelonious Monk, who's a jazz musician. Uh-huh. That's the first his name. And then my father's name is Luther, and he was named after his father, so that was his middle name. So we brought it, you know, he came home, and everything was fine. Everything was perfectly normal with the pregnancy and all of that. And... 
he was just like this fabulous little boy and it was so cute i mean you can watch babies you know how they look at your face and he would start to make yeah. little ooh, ooh noises and so, it, he seemed like he wanted to say something so badly like he really wanted to talk yeah and it just it looks like he's trying to like say things and he was doing all of that stuff and really growing and but at three months old i mean they're still really babies like they're infants you know and oh yeah absolutely so there's a lot that happened that he was getting to these points we were watching and then one day he started having seizures and he vomited and i happened to be home alone that day and that was an incredibly traumatic day we went took him to the hospital well, first i called the pediatrician and they said you know just watch him and if he throws up some more and give him the pedialyte if he throws up more then take him to the ER because it was of course like a Saturday and it's in August the end of January. yeah so he did and I you know I will say that I was watching him and I knew there was something really wrong like he one of his eyes was closed and one was open and he was moving his hands around and the other one he was so I knew there was something wrong with his brain and I just like wasn't really registering in the moment with me at that time yeah Right. But then I took him to the ER. I mean, it was, but it wasn't at the same time. And I told the ER doctor that then what I had seen, and they did a CT scan, and it was that was a really horrible day. And they were trying to get fluids in him, so he would because he was dehydrated from having thrown up like like three times. He threw up a lot, and which for a little guy, they just can't handle that very much. Yeah, yeah, that's a lot. And he, the doctor came back and was like. Oh, the baby has blood on his brain. And I said, what do you mean he has blood on his brain? What causes blood on his brain? And he said, dropping the baby, abusing the baby. And I said, what? Oh, my word. Oh, it was just horrific. That is horrific. At the same time, and I'm like waiting for a social worker to come in and talk to us. But then they rushed us to another hospital with a pediatric neurosurgeon and where they did an MRI and found... Yeah. That there was a tumor really it's on the yeah it was choroid plexus carcinoma and the choroid plexus is the structure in the center of the brain that, that makes cerebral spinal fluid mm -hmm. and that's where the tumor was but it was kind of pushing into one of the lobes and it was really pretty big yeah uh, but i never really i mean i learned so much about cancer and brain tumors that i never ever wanted to know through that process but we were in the hospital basically for about a month from that point on. And then when we brought him home, the baby that we brought home was a very different baby than the baby we had for three months. Yeah. Because everything he had been through. So it was really difficult. I mean, it was very, I mean, you can even see it in pictures, like the the difference in, you know, how he looks and the kind of just the expression on his face and things. But it was really interesting because when, so I'll back up. To my knowledge, still, he is the youngest child ever diagnosed with this tumor. Mm -hmm. Usually it's toddlers. It's very rare for an infant to have this kind of tumor. The only thing really more rare would be if it was a teenager or an adult, because that just doesn't really happen. And nobody knew what to do because right. you normally would treat tumor first with radiation, which you cannot do to a, they wouldn't do to a three-month-old. Mm-hmm. And so they put him on the 70-week chemo schedule, thinking by the time he's done with the chemo, which is a long time, yeah, then we'll radiate 
software and see what happens. But of course they had to operate first. And uh, those tumors usually, so one in 275 million children have a coral plexus carcinoma. Most coral plexus tumors are benign. So only 20% of them are carcinoma kind, which are really deadly. Yeah. And when they did the first chemo treatment, that was also on a Saturday, strangely. That next week, so Tuesday, I wasn't there at that time, but we had taken to like changing our work schedule. So one of us was with him all the time. So my husband was there and I was at work and he noticed that he was not acting. He was like really agitated and not seeming <sighs> like his, his, his usual self, usual, I guess, being in the hospital self, but he could tell something was going on. And after some you really convincing of the doctors that were on duty at the time, they did a, a CT scan then and found what they called total neurological devastation, which is basically the entire wow. cerebral cortex was just devastated for that. Cause I, I was, I remember saying brain dead and they said, no, 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 it's not that that's a legal term. And I just was like, okay, well, what this means is that he can't eat. He can't, he won't talk. He won't, walk he won't play wow and he's got this tumor that's still deadly so we decided at that point which he had been through like seven surgeries at that point seven wow to withdraw treatment and bring him home and not put him through any more surgeries and so then we came home with really fabulous pediatric hospice support palliative care and he lived for five more months at home wow and then he died February 20th, 2006. So from the day of that diagnosis to his death, it was six months, though. Yeah. And he died. It was, it was interestingly, I don't know, I kept trying for a long time, like, what does this mean? You know, trying to figure out meanings and numbers and things. And because you're always trying to just figure out. Yep. Well, not always, but in the beginning, I was always trying to figure that out. But he was born, at, he was 39 weeks. He was born or a week early. Mm -hmm. And when he died, he was 39 weeks old. Really? Wow. So he spent the same amount of time in utero as he did out. And it was just that I don't have a clue what it means. But, you know, I remember then thinking, what does this mean? And like doing all these numbers. And he died at 333. And we reduced that down. And that's a three. And what do all these threes mean? And I don't know. It, it, it doesn't really matter, honestly, in the bigger picture. But, in, you know, in the beginning, I'm always was always trying to figure out like this mystery that yeah. seemed to make no sense. But because you do want to make sense of it somehow. Right. Exactly. Right. I mean, that's the thing. You want to make a little bit of sense out of it when there is just none. No, exactly. That's right. Yeah. So that was kind of our journey. Yeah. And I always, my therapist has told me so often that parents, especially moms, really need to know why. You need to know why. So that goes along with that. You need to just have answers to questions. And the problem is, is mo met many yeah. times, they're just unanswerable questions. Oh, absolutely. And the, the why is totally unanswerable, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, and of course, we hear all of the, everything happens for a reason kind of things and i which is not know, at all helpful uh, and i don't know if that's true <laughs> no. but you know i've said uh, many times to people if 
if whatever powers that be, you know, were to like show up in front of me and say, okay, Carla, look, here's why I cannot possibly think of any reason that would be good enough for me. Right. Right. You know, I don't care what it is. I mean, I could be like, okay, well, why him? You know, why? And all of us, right, as parents would say, well, take me instead. And it should have been me instead. And all these things that just make no sense. And but in the in the beginning, for sure, it was just lots of why. And and I did. I found this a, a quote that actually really helped me in that. And through the why uh, from a poet, a German Raina Maria mm-hmm. Rilke, who's and this was then letters to a young poet. Okay, I'll, I'll try to I'll try to remember the, how it goes, but he he said, "Try to be patient with all that is unsolved in your heart, and learn to love the questions themselves as if they were locked rooms or books written in a foreign tongue. Because if the answers could be given you now, you would not be able to live them. And point is to live everything, live the questions now." And perhaps one day you will live your way along the future into an answer. Wow. That is really profound. But I, when I read that, I just thought, okay, I can live the question now. I can just live that question. And maybe one day I will live my way into the answer. I don't know if that's going to happen. Right. I'm pretty sure. I'll probably have to die and somebody better be waiting to give me some answers when that happens. <laughs> right, um, right. But, right. you know, before then, pretty sure these questions are unanswerable. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, and it makes me think, too, of just the, the randomness of so many things. And the people, you know, we all human beings try to make, and our brains are built such that we try to make sense of things and try to find patterns and and make meaning out of everything yeah and it's it's one of the reasons that we've evolved to where we are now because that's for better or for worse but it's how our brains work and well and we do talk about here on the podcast about having some meaning making in your grief right and having some good things come from your grief but that is totally different than being accepting of and saying, well, it was worth it then. Right. Or this is the reason why Andy died so that I could have a podcast and so that I could help other people. Like, that's ridiculous. It's not worth it to me. It's not. I would take this all back. I mean, here I am sitting in Andy's room doing a podcast. I would much rather have him be away at college right now and have this room be waiting for him for Thanksgiving break starting here in a day. Exactly. Right? That's what should be happening. Right. And in my mind, none of this is worth that. No. As much as I know it has been helped, has helped other people. And I know the work that Mm -hmm. you do helps other people, but you wouldn't exchange it. I mean, you would take Theo in a second. Oh, absolutely. And give all that back. I was doing good work before this. (laughs) Right. I was doing really good things. Exactly. Exactly. It just didn't need to be this way. Nope. Yeah. And I have had people say that to me and I've shut it down really quick. Right. Because, yeah, I would I would give it a trade at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and also, you know, even as much 
as I feel that it, it his being his mother and and living through this has made me really a more compassionate person, a more understanding yeah. person, a kinder person. I hope I was okay before. Like I wasn't a bad person. I didn't need <laughs> right. to learn a lesson. You know, right. for, I didn't need. That. Yeah. So yeah, and I I think. I think those are, you know, as you know, like they're easy platitudes for other people to say that makes them feel better. Yeah, exactly. I think that's the thing. It makes yeah. them feel better. And if they in their mind can now justify it in some way, I I think it makes them less scared that it could happen to them, too. Yeah, exactly. That they feel like, well, it happened to Marcy because she's going to do all this stuff with it. And, and maybe then it won't happen to me. Well, it. You know, that that doesn't that logic makes no sense at all. No, it's not logical. But I think in their heads a little bit, it it does. It's just scary. The whole prospect is scary. Right. It's the fear. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was just going to have you start talking a little bit about your maybe early grief journey. Well, it was terrifying and awful, you know, you know. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I do remember feeling really well I'm, I didn't feel fortunate then I feel fortunate now that I was the kind of person that I just really knew I cannot run away from this like I have to feel all of this and I I knew that already that is good that is good and I spent a lot of time really like in my grief and it's interesting because I mean I work with so many people now and and again I guess it's like we do what we have to or can with what we've got you know and I remember thinking like how does anybody do this when they have other children mm -hmm. like I don't know how because I can barely take care of the animals I mean I had three cats and a dog and I yeah. could like could barely take care of them but then I know that mm -hmm. people who have other children will say to me oh I could never do this if I didn't have them to get up and take care of you know I mean it's yeah. like because you know what you know. That's the thing. Right. I mean, I, I remember being in support groups, and I've said this on the podcast before, and being in support groups and how we would tell, told our stories. The second week, we always tell our stories, and, and other people came up to us and said, I don't know how you're doing it. That would be like the worst. And I'm looking at them like, what are you talking about? Your story was way worse than yeah. my story. And, and that we all tend to think that, well, I did this, so it must not be that horrible I couldn't even imagine doing having it be the other way you know having to watch your child die over months to me seems like oh that would be worse to me than losing Andy suddenly in a car accident I know and I I to me I just I know that I'm I was lucky to have that time with him yeah I mean and I didn't have him for all that long but I know people who like you, all of a sudden, you know, it was just suddenly. Or, you know, people who put their babies to bed and they walk in and they're dead in their crib, you know. It's, yeah, right. And those people said to me, they didn't know how I did, did what I did. And I'm just, wow, you know, yes. I, to me. Yes, this is what we say to each other. I know. I've had all of this time to hold. That child had more love and care and, and he was in somebody's arms all the time you know I mean he was surrounded yeah. by love and I have pictures and I have video and I have things that I know lots of other people don't have 
you know. Right. I mean, there's no comparing. No. I would love to have had him for 14 years, <laughs> but right. Also, just like the same the same thing of like I know that because I I knew what was happening, I also had time to think about like what do I want this funeral to be like, which I know is strange to think. Okay, I'm gonna spend time like thinking about this, but I thought, well, you know, if I have to do this. I want it to be like the best, the best I can make it be. It's this, this send off for him, this like yeah. thing to remember him when I know other people can't even like barely function and they're having to make these decisions. Wow. And I had lots of time and space, well, not lots, but the ability to make decisions. And I was able to write him a letter and all of these things, and but it's just really interesting. And I see this in clients too, like what, exactly what you're saying, that when you're in it, like it just doesn't seem as bad. I mean, that sounds really crazy to say, but sometimes I really have to point out, yeah. hey, you're underestimating. Like they think, oh, I should be doing better or I shouldn't still be this upset or I whatever, you know, and, I, and I'm just like, okay, this is what has happened to you. Let me just remind you, you know. Yeah. Because we really underestimate. I'll go back and read things that I wrote early on or even when he was dying, right? When he was sick. And I'm just like, you do that. It's like a different yeah. person did it. I'm just like, ah, I mean, really, I can, the perspective now. But when you're in it, it's very different. Yeah. You know, and it reminds me of, you know, when I'm sure you got this because a lot of, a lot of us do. Of that oh you're so strong stuff you know? yeah. oh my god I'm just like I just hate that so much <laughs> y'all can see me in those moments when I'm just on the floor and I li- literally cannot get up you know like those yeah. moments where mm-hmm. it truly was just like how does this not kill me and somehow you don't die yeah. from it it's amazing it's amazing it is amazing yeah, you just bring back a memory of me laying in this very spot where I'm sitting right now. I bet. Just laying on the floor, sobbing, completely unable Absolutely. to Absolutely. And then eventually, you lay there long enough, and there's no more tears to come out of your face. And your, you know, your face is so swollen, and your eyes are red and burning, and you're so much snot in your face, you can't get even one tiny sip of air in there at all, much less blow it. It's just like concrete. But then eventually it's like, okay, well, I have to stand up now. And you do. Yeah. And you do. That's it. You do. Because you don't have a choice. You can just lay there forever. Right. I mean, I'm thinking that, okay, well, I do. What what are my choices? And I've talked to clients about this too. What are my choices? Okay. I could keep laying here and then what? I'm just going to like pretend to be catatonic. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to do that. Right. <laughs> so I have to get up and then what? I'm just going to stay like drunk or high constantly. Like that's not a good choice. You know, I can't do that no. because that doesn't turn out the way we want it to turn out. Like, what am I going to do? I'm not going to kill myself because now my parents would have to live through this. Right. I'm not going to do that to my husband, right? Right. What do you do? You you get up. Yeah, you get up. And you take a breath and you go do the next thing. I mean, and you just keep doing that. I remember a client of mine whose son had taken his own life and she she came into my office and she like, it was a day like she was in her pajamas, which is fine. It's whatever. But that was that day. Just 
flopped down on the sofa and she's just sobbing and sobbing and she's just like, I can't do this. And I just said, well, you're doing it. I can't. This went on for yeah. like 20 minutes at least. And then we did. Yeah. We had that talk. I was like, okay, what? You can't do it. What are you going to do instead? Like, what's the option? And we talked about the options. Yeah. And she didn't like any of those either. And then, you know, at the end of the time, we were talking about something totally different. We were laughing about something. I don't even know what. And I said, you know, I just want you to notice that you feel really differently right now than you did when you came in here. And that doesn't mean you're not going to be there again because you will. But you can yeah. know, and what we can know is that it will, like, change. Like, no, and again, Rilke, Maria, Raina Maria Rilke said, no feeling is final. And even though it still is horrible and awful, you're not always in that worst space. And then when you keep mm -hmm. getting up and doing the things, like whatever the things are that for each one of us, is that like remembering them and honoring them and making meaning of their lives and also maybe why we're still here potentially that helps us to keep just going on the next moment and sometimes it's from one breath to the next not one day to the yeah. next but somehow i mean you know i remember too like waking up every single morning and being like oh my god he's dead like this is actually happening you know yes. or sometimes it will be like that is the thought that would wake me up like a somebody just throwing a cold bucket of water in your face and it's like i don't know if there was a dream happening who knows or sometimes you will wake up and for like a, just a brief moment you've like forgotten and then forgot yeah it comes right back and it's the first thing you're like oh like that's still happening still happening yeah that really happened. And I do remember, mm -hmm. though, I wish I had written it down, but I remember, like, re recognizing that that was not the first thing that I thought that day, which was really weird. Yeah. And it's still not. It's never the first thing that I think anymore, even though his picture is right next to my bed. It's, like, the last thing I see when I turn out the light, and it's always right there in the morning. But I never get that, like, and, I, and that is our brain, again, trying to, like, makes sense that this really happened and i guess eventually mm -hmm. your brain's like oh yeah you don't have to think of that every single morning because now we know it's true which sucks on its own but so it right i'm really glad that i don't wake up thinking that every single morning now right because occasionally you i still do occasionally i still do and it's oh those mornings yeah. are so hard when that is the first thing i'm thinking about because most of the time it's not and i think you're right i think it's because my brain's accepted it now and it doesn't have to be because that's what it used to be it it would just be this thought just coming in my mind just saying andy's dead andy's dead andy's dead just like yeah. all the time just coming in and i know it was because i wasn't really truly believing it and i was trying to help myself actually believe it and so that's why i would get those thoughts yeah. so that i would accept that this is actually true and this really it's did the reality because it just seems so unfathomable you know i know it still does yeah right still does uh -huh. even years later mm -hmm. yeah but i also remember that more when i realized that i hadn't thought it right away of course you feel like oh my god does this mean i'm forgetting him oh my, am i paying 
yeah. disloyal somehow to, to his memory or my grief. And because, you know, also in the beginning, those things are hard to separate. Yeah. And I know that they're, they're not the same, like the grief. And it's interesting because I hated it for so long. And I would send this to my friend. It was like on a death anniversary day. And I was like, I hate this. I hate this grief so much. I hate this grief. And she's like, you don't hate the grief. And I was like, I do hate the grief. No, you don't. Yeah. And we went back and forth. And then she said, no, you hate that he's dead. You don't hate the grief. And I was like, well, that's true. The grief is just this byproduct that I can't not have it. It's just what happens as a result, you know, and it's not, it's kind of neutral or it's, you know, even now it's like a part of who I am. Like, it's not my enemy. I mean, and and this is something that I do talk to people about a lot. And, and I know that it's really, because in the beginning, especially like you were asking me about early grief, you want with every single fiber of your being for this not to be true. And so it's very hard to not see grief as your enemy. Because it's the representative of the mm-hmm. fact of their death. But eventually, you know, I kind of was able to see, yeah, you know, it's not. This is just what happens because that occurred. And of course it did. Right, right. And I remember hearing someone say that grief is love with no place to go. Yeah. You know, you don't have that physical person there to love anymore. And so you feel that grief from that and that helped me thinking about it in that way to then not hate the grief so much well you don't and we none of us grieve anything that we don't love and i never met the person yet who would trade their love to be rid of the grief i don't know that person no no and it really no it's learning how to think of it in that way and knowing, too, that, you know, even if grief is your companion or it's always going to be there in some form or another, that love can just grow and grow and grow. And so can your connection to your child and that relationship can still be there. Mm-hmm. Now, would we rather just have them here and like you're saying, have him be coming home from college and living their lives? Yes, of course. Yes. But we don't get to because that's not this reality. No, that's not a choice. So, but we can yeah. continue to connect and, and nurture that relationship and be their mothers and grow that connection the same way that you, you do with your living children. And it changes over time. Mm-hmm. You know, like I had a really, it took me a long, long, long time to see him in my mind as anything other than a baby. But now I do. I can see him and yeah. picture him as a young man. I wish I could know like yeah. for real what he would be like if he were here, but, but I yeah. don't have a problem thinking of him as being 18 or thinking of what he might look like or that that would be who he is. When as for years, I could just like not see him as anything other than what he looked like when he died or when he was, you know, at any point in that, that nine months that I had him here, I can see him in all those ways, but I could not see him as like a two-year-old or a four-year-old or an eight-year-old. It was really difficult. I just had no clue. And I, it was, my mind was like, no, 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 that's not right. But over time I was, I think around 11, I was able to see him as like an 11-year-old. Really? And it was interesting. I can't quite see his face, but 
the rest of them I can see. <laughs> and it and it just is normal. Like when I think of him now, I do imagine him and think of him as an eighteen year old and not I mean I still like, you know, any child that we have, like my daughter's fifteen, I know what she looks like and who she is at fifteen. I can just as easily see her at any age that she's been, right? So I can sort of right, still right. see him as a baby, but when I think of him, I think of him as an 18-year-old now, which I, for me, I feel like that's huge because I couldn't for the long That is yeah. huge. Do you know why that happened? How that happened for you? Uh, well, I do, actually. I went, I went okay. with my mom to a, like a group mediumship. Thing. Okay. I didn't feel the need to go for me and I I mean and we could talk about that I mean it comes up a lot with lots of my clients um but my grandmother had recently died and she wanted to go to see if she would get any communication from her mother so I was like okay I'll go with you because she didn't want to go by herself and it was a small group thing so like everybody there would have a I don't remember how many people maybe 10 maybe 12 and I was just sitting with her he was talking to her and saying things about my grandmother and then he looks at me and he goes do you have are your children separated that's what he said and I said yes and he said do you have a son that passed which is not these are not the word I I never use that like I think he, he died right but I said yes yeah. and he said was he eight year eight years old when he died and I said no but it was it was eight years since he had died in him years mm -hmm. and he goes oh well I see this there's a little eight-year-old boy and I was just like why does this dude get to see my son as an eight-year-old like I don't I did not like it it upset a lot yeah and I was right. not happy about it and I didn't say that to him at the time but I didn't really engage very much um, and oh he also told me that he was a lot like me, that he had my sense of humor and a lot of, lot, a lot of my personality, which also did not fit with what I felt. I thought he would be, and I still do actually, I think he would be a lot more like my husband, um, quieter. And I have a, you know, my daughter is the way mm -hmm. my daughter is, and they look, they, they don't look alike. He's more blonde, he's blondish, and she looks more like me. And I know her personality, and I feel like he would be very different from her. And I just thought, Who's I? Why do I get to think he knows stuff about my kid that I don't know? Like I really didn't like it, and yeah, you know, and I and I've thought and it and I had this like really hard time with thinking somebody else could picture my child as an older child when I couldn't. It was it really pissed me off, really. And I thought, yeah. okay, I'm going to work on this, and I'm going to see if I can like start seeing him as the age that he would be. And I had to work on it for yeah. like three years. And finally, like when he was like 11, 12 years old, I started like picturing this boy like that in that way, rather than the baby that I had held and had for all, you know, those months. And that also held in my mind for all those years. And mm -hmm. so I, I, I do actually, I guess, have to say I, I'm glad that that happened. Yeah. But I, I don't like how it happened. Yeah. I can see that for sure. I still don't think that that he could particularly see him in that way. And I, I mean, this might get into some like woo strange territory, but 
I mean, I know that there are people I communicate with my child all the time, you know, and, and I, we all do like we all have this ability to connect with our beloved dead. And I believe that there are other people who can do this with other people's beloved dead. But the thing that it's a, they're a medium, they are the go between. They are not going to experience your child or anybody that you love in any other way than how that child or that loved one would present to you. Like a parent would see their child the way they expect to see their child. And then the medium, I would think, would experience them that way. So, and there's also, you know, the difference in mediumship and intuitive or psychic abilities, which I also believe all of us have that capability. And I think now that he picked up somehow this like eight year thing from me and then in his mind turned it into an eight year old. I don't believe that he would oh. have the privilege to experience my child in any kind of way that I wouldn't. Because why would he? That doesn't make sense. The only way that any medium is able to connect with anybody that we love is through our connection with them. And that's not the kind of connection that I had with him. I was not able to see him in that way. And I don't believe that he would have been able to. And I think that he just, not purposefully, but I think did pick up the eight-year thing somehow and just made it into an eight-year-old child. That's just what I think now because I can't figure out any other reason. It doesn't make sense to me that he would show him show up to some a stranger looking any kind of way other than how I would see him. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, I know what you mean. Now, and do I know this for a fact? No, it's just what seems to make sense to me. And I am glad now that I was able to like grow my perception of him. I think it would be okay if I spent the rest of my life seeing him as a baby as well. But I also, that's one of the things, like I just would love to know who he would be now. And I like that I can picture him at the age that he would be. And I have to say, just recently, I have been able to do that a little bit more too because it's just been I mean I always just pictured him at 14 but what has happened with me is that Peter is you know a senior in high school now so definitely far older than he was he's he's 17 now and, and I remember people early on saying that I was lucky in a way that Andy and Peter looked so oh. much alike that I would know what Andy was going Better. to look like because I mean, it it was they look so much alike that when Peter had his nine month pictures taken, we played a joke on Eric's parents and gave him pictures of Andy <laughs> at nine months that we had taken two and a half years before, and they were completely convinced it was Peter. And like, no, actually, those are the ones of Andy. <laughs> These are the ones of Peter, and they didn't believe us because they thought it was quite sure that it was Peter. So they look that much alike. But what has happened as we've gone on like college visits as I'm seeing these college students and we go to lots of Michigan State basketball games and so I see all these college students and I've been picturing him in a way that I hadn't before and it's just I think because Peter's going to be going to college and then I keep thinking Andy should be a sophomore now I just I'm picturing him differently and it's really only been in these last few months that that changed that I wasn't thinking about him more as uh you know just a freshman in high school a high school kid wow 
So it's, it's interesting that you say that. So I think it comes to us differently, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Well, and it's also, and I'm sure you experienced that, like as Peter was getting older, when he turned 14 and got older than his brother. Oh, right. Yeah. Oh, that was, that was so, so hard. incredibly difficult. Yeah. And then watching him yeah. continue to get older. I mean, I'm so still wonder how tall right. would Andy be? Would he be the same height as right. Peter? Would he have been not as tall? Would he have been taller? I don't know. Right. No, we don't. I, I don't know any of these things. I don't know any of these things. But I think it's then going on these college tours and seeing these sophomores, because a lot of times it's like a sophomore, giving the tour and think, man, that could have been Andy. What if it was Andy? I wonder where Andy would be now. What school would he have gone to? Like all of those things, just picturing him in a different way. Yeah. Well, you've spent a lot of time talking about your clients, but we haven't really gone into how kind of that started and what what you are doing now. So I'd love for you to talk about that. I'm a licensed therapist and I was a therapist already. Like when this happened, um, yeah. I worked in a private school. I was working in a private school with kids with autism and co-occurring with other mental health diagnoses. But the main issue was some severe behavioral issues that could cause, you know, were dangerous to them or really would kept, kept them from being able to be in a public school setting. Uh-huh. Some kids, that school that I worked for also had group homes, and so some of the kids lived there as well. So that's what I was doing before, and I and I did that for a long time. So when I had this baby, and then he died, your when your child dies, like your whole universe is shattered. You know, it's just yeah. everything you thought was true is not true anymore, and nothing makes sense anymore. And so because I... As a therapist, we have to keep up, you know, on current education and get CEUs every year. And so I started taking all these grief trainings, not because I wanted to be a grief therapist or was gonna, but because I really was trying to understand my own situation. Yeah. Wanted to learn more. And it's really interesting. Like, no, and I, even in, even in grad school, but I took a, a semester long course in counseling and death and dying and grief and bereavement. And nothing that I learned, and then I'm not saying, I mean, clearly you want trained and educated therapists, but all of that was just nothing compared to my, my own experience. It was interesting, right? It was like, you know, models of grief and, and learning about the literature and reading all it. It's, it's interesting to me because it's what I do anyway, but the experience of it is just, I'm not sure any of that really helped me. Other than yeah. I like to have information, you know, and having information helps me feel better in a, in a lot of ways. So that uh -huh. was helpful, but I don't really think that it actually helped me figure much out. For me, like in the beginning, and it's interesting because I had a lot of friends of mine who were therapists who were like, oh, do you think you should see a therapist? And this is not to discourage anybody, but if you go see a therapist and you've had traumatic grief, and your child dying is always traumatic, you want to make sure that that person has good training and knows what they're doing. Because this is right. such a huge, huge event. And our culture does not deal with it very well. And neither do a lot of therapists. Like, they don't have the training. And it's a very, very right. scary thing to a lot of people. It's terrifying. And even if somebody says, you know, on their 
psychology today profile or whatever that they work with grief, find out what's your training been and make sure that they've had training in traumatic grief and find out what it is, you know, like be a good consumer because right. Anyway, back to people asking me if I needed a therapist. I just thought, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. And I was terrified. And I'm and I am not saying, because I know this isn't true now, you do not have to be a bereaved parent to help a bereaved parent. You don't. But in the at the time, right. I looked for a therapist that had had a child die and I and I couldn't find one or either one that it was saying so out loud. And I just thought if I go to a therapist and they try to like tell me that I'm doing this wrong or they talk to me about stages or they ask me, you know, what I'm doing to move on, I will be furious because I was really angry for a, a few years. I will be furious and it will not help me. And I was scared that they, they would try like, yeah, tell me that I need to do something different or um, move on, you know, like. Yeah, that is scary. That's a scary prospect. I have people come to me and I hear things that other therapists have said and it is, it's, it's very upsetting. You know, I've had people say, well, why are you so angry? Are you kidding me? You know, or try to like push people to find the meaning before they're ready to do anything like that, you know, or they just right. don't understand and, or they say the same things that people out in the world say that are hurtful and helpful. Yeah. So Anyway, so I did not go to a therapist. What I did do is I went to support groups, and I am really thankful that there was already a chapter of the Miss Foundation here. And I think a lot of people think that I started the chapter that's here already, but I did not. And the Miss Foundation is a nonprofit organization that supports families after the death of a child, and they were meeting. And so I went. And I didn't miss a meeting for like three years. And also when the woman who did facilitate the meetings found out what I did, that I was a therapist, she asked me if I would help her facilitate. And I really first did really did not want to. Because right. I thought if I do this, then I'm not going to have a space for me, which is true. Like that's what happened. But I also thought, okay. I am at a place, and this was like three years in, I'm at a place where I can do this, you know, and I know I have the ability because I do it at work. You know, I've, I've done these things. I can facilitate groups. And and we also have two training to, to learn how to do these right. particular things. But I did. And then I thought, well, you know, maybe I should, you know, do these, do groups somewhere else. And I started doing some groups in local hospices. And at that point, my daughter um, was like two, and when she started preschool, because I'd had people asking me, oh, do you have a private practice? Can we come see you for counseling? And I didn't, but when she started preschool, I was working part-time after she was born, and I was able to start a practice, and then by the end of that school year, really, I had enough people to quit my other job, and I did not like start out seeing all grief clients because that was when I started my private practice that was 2010 January of 2010 so that was only four years in and that's still really new and fresh grief right I was still like really hard for me and I knew I can't be seeing all like everybody so I would see you know just people regular people looking for therapy regular people but like anxiety yeah. you know whatever regular people wanting support and help 
and a few people in grief. And usually it would be people from meetings that wanted, you know, extra more space and time. And then over time, you know, lots of things evolved. And now I don't take any new people that are not traumatically bereaved people unless there's a, unless somebody asks me specifically for other reasons, like they're interested in other things that I might do, like yoga stuff or meditation or whatever. Or that they're they're looking for something that's different from maybe other therapists, but very rarely do I take any new people that are not traumatically bereaved people. So it's really switched now um, because I've, I've yeah. I'm in a place where I can carry my stuff and other people's, but I don't take it with me. You know, like I yours is yours, and I I know now how to do that, and I'm strong enough in my own space that. It's okay for me to, I can hold the space for lots of people now, but that really is a thing that evolves over time. Yeah, that takes a lot of time. I mean, honestly, it's a conversation that I've had quite a bit with my therapist as to, you know, just what I do now and how I am doing and how that affects me. You know, I mean, people that I work with, certainly I think portion of them probably think it's a little crazy that I you know, see patients at the office three days a week, which honestly, considering how, where my age and how I am in my practice tends to be a lot of teenagers with like anxiety and depression and mental health kind of issues. So I do that. Like, yeah, I saw a lot of teenagers too, because all I saw was teenagers for, you know, in my other, so I was used to teenage. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Right. So that's what I do like during my work days. And then my non-work days, I talk to parents whose kids have died and that's like, it's just, you know, it's heavy. It can be heavy. And so we talk about, I mean, I've talked to my therapist about, we, I take a little bit of breaks now. We, I try to do some interviews and things like that kind of together. And then I give myself a little bit of time and I have an editor now to do some things. And there may be a time when that's easier, but I mean, especially around that five-year anniversary, you know, I mean, it gets heavy. It gets really heavy. And as you said, I'm, I mean, I'm a lot, I'm really still pretty early in some ways. Yes, you are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because people don't think that like. No, I know. Non-bereaved people do not think that five years is early. I know they don't. At all. I know, I know they don't. They don't know, <laughs> do they? But I remember, so I remember, so his my son died February 20th. So a lot of times that falls around President's Day stuff. And yeah. our groups, when I was facilitating the groups, it was every third Monday of the month. And so this was like year 11. We went out of town and my daughter didn't have school. And I we, we live near Virginia Beach. So we just went to Virginia Beach and got a hotel room for a few nights. I like sometimes just leaving town on anniversary days taken several beach trips and went to DC and just it's nice to just get out of town uh anyway I thought oh well you know Monday I can drive home I usually do not do anything else as long as I can control my schedule I will never work on his birthday or on the death day but I thought right well this is okay like I can go if the, the meeting was falling on that Monday and I was like well I can just drive home that Monday and I can go to the meeting and I can do that and I got up that morning and I was like, I cannot talk to anybody. I can't do it. And I had I'm, I had never canceled a meeting before ever. 
And that was the first I canceled a yeah. meeting. And I, I was just like, I can't, I can't do it. Like, I cannot be the one holding the space on this anniversary day. And it was a really interesting lesson for me because I thought before, oh, surely, you know, and, and it's my space, like it's my people. I can do that, but I couldn't. You know, still learning, you know, where your boundaries are. And so I'll never do that again. I don't care if it's 20 years. It's like I'm never going to schedule anything to do anything for anybody else on any of those those kind of sacred days because you just don't know how you're going to feel. And it is very difficult. And, yes, five years is really early still. It just is. Yeah. Sometimes it feels like, you know, just yesterday and other times it feels like it's been a long time, but. Yeah. Yes, mm -hmm. it does. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I remember like it was a good three years. It was like at least three years, every single day for three years, once or maybe twice a day, I was on the floor crying my face off having those big, like I stopped wearing eye makeup because I couldn't, I changed my whole makeup routine. Like I stopped wearing foundation, <laughs> which to a tinted moisturizer. I started using the, like the gel blush because you had streaks all down your face. I gave up on eye makeup, period, for like three years. And then even after like I stopped being a daily like sober, it's still five years is so it's still really early mm -hmm. and it's very fresh. And no, people don't understand it. They really don't. No, no. I have to say it was a blessing to me in some ways, you know, when we had the pandemic. So I went back to work, like finally, <laughs> really went back to work in the November before the, like the shutdown. So it was November of 2019. I started just doing walk-in and started seeing some patients. And then by January, it was kind of up, up to a full schedule. And then March, you know, the pandemic hit and everybody in the office started always wearing a mask. Do you know how awesome that was for me? Because I could cry and my cheeks would get all puffy and all this stuff would happen. And nobody knew. <laughs> nobody knew. Because I put this mask on. I stuck my glasses on. Nobody knew how upset sometimes yeah. I could get in there. It was, <laughs> I mean, in many ways I hated wearing the mask. But in other ways, it it was it was really interesting because I felt like I was putting a mask on always uh, anyway. Yeah. Like, right. Huh. In front of my patients, I'm like just wearing this mask and then I physically would put one on over the top and it felt it felt in some ways a little bit mm. right just because that's what I was doing. I was just putting on this false yeah. mask in front of people still. Now I don't feel like I have to fake things nearly as much as I did, especially those first months after coming back, the first six months or year. Yeah. 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 I remember being like really, really glad that I had an office where I could shut the door and it was locked. Like if, because like I was right in the hallway where all the kids are. And so they would come in, like they all knew where the candy was in my office. You know, it's like if you're in the hall yeah. and my door is shut, you can't get in. And only me and one other person in the building has a key to my door. And so I knew if I go in there and I'm really quiet, nobody knows that. Nobody will know where I am and nobody can get to me. And it was great. Yeah. There were so, and, I, and I work, you know, I've talked to so many people, like when they go back to work, they don't always feel they have safe spaces, you know, where you can yeah. go yeah. or they work out in a big space with everybody else. And there aren't places you can go and just cry or... yeah just like go somewhere in your mind. I mean, I spent 
Also with the Men's Foundation, especially then, we still do have online support forums. Mm-hmm. But this was before social media at all, which, you know, it's a blessing in, in a lot of ways. But I was on those support forums all the time, you know, and people, I've even had others say to me, maybe you shouldn't be on there so much, like talking to people all the time about, but I was on there so much, they made me a moderator. But I would just go on there and I would just like get online and just be like, I need to talk to somebody is there somebody in Australia or somebody in another time zone who's just out there. We can just hang out for a minute because I need, I just need to be with people who get it, you know, even for five minutes. Yeah. Or just to be in there yeah. and cry. But it was very difficult. And yeah, I get the whole math thing. And honestly, like with, with the kids I was working with, in a lot of ways, it was so much easier because they didn't ask me a lot of questions. You know, it wasn't all right. these things. They knew me a lot. Like it wasn't the same as when you're you're seeing people in a in an outpatient like therapy setting because I was there all the time. Like they all knew me and in the hallway, they're seeing you. But they didn't ask a lot of stuff about my personal life. And so I didn't really have to talk about it much, which was good. So, yeah. and a lot of them were like, can we just play Uno? I'm like, yes, let's get the Uno cards. Fine. We'll just do that. <laughs> it was so hard to just be back yeah. in that space and serving other people. And it's, it is really difficult making that switch back into life, you know? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I remember yeah. that. Yeah, it is hard. It is hard. And I love how you really have organically allowed things to change. I mean, I, that story of you from where you started to kind of where you are now it just was kind of little change after little change, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, I didn't. And, you know, it's interesting because I, I will talk to people now who often will say really early on, they don't think they're doing enough. Like they need to do something. And I blame I blame oh, Internet yeah. sometimes for this because it's like you have these stories of people who doing these big, huge things. And, and I'm like, I didn't plan any of this. Like it all just kind of you let it unfold, you know, and yes. it all kind of really yes. just did. Yes. But the first book that I wrote, well, it's interesting. So the whole, when he was sick, I kept a blog. And that was sort of accidental too, because my, the day he was having surgery, my dad was there and my mom. And the only other person who knew was my husband's sister. And I realized like, nobody knows that we're even here. And so I was emailing a bunch of people. And then I was writing people back as they were writing me. And my dad said, what are you doing? And I told him and he said, oh, you should start a blog. And I was like, what? I didn't even know what a blog was. And he's like, oh, it's short for web blog. You just make one post and they can all come and check and see what you're doing. And I was like, oh, so it started off as this just like I'm updating everybody. I don't have to email, the you know, all the people. Yeah. Yeah. But then, of course, it turned into something else. And there were a lot of people following and then after he died, I kept it up for a while. And then I, and it's still online because I can't quite bring myself to take it down. But then all of the stuff I wrote, I, it turned into sort of a memoir, which had not been published. And I, and I was like, I don't know what to do with this. I, I, I feel like I really needed to get it out there and tell his story and who he is and all of that. And I didn't know anything about any of the process. I thought I was supposed to get an agent, which is you don't unless you're like selling a lot of books and I wasn't. Mm -hmm. But so 
and then when I got pregnant with my daughter and I got a lot of rejections because I sent out a lot of stuff to a lot of agencies and agents and it was all of this like oh it's a, you're a beautiful writer it's lovely but we just want to focus on something different I'm, if he'd been cured it would already be like a Hallmark movie I'm sure right right but it was like it's child dying and now it is different there's a lot more grief literature out there now and that's a good thing but I really think it's because mm. the baby dies and they won the happy ending and didn't have one. So I put it away when I was pregnant with my daughter. And then later I pulled it back out and I thought, well, maybe I should do something else with this. But I'm going to go like look for publishers instead of agents. And I came across the, the Jessica Kingsley publishers who I had a lot of books on my shelf because they published for therapists and social workers and stuff like this. And they had on their website, it said, we want writers to write about autism and we want writers to write about art therapy. And I was like, I can do both of those things. And I wrote the first yeah. book, which is the Finding Your Own Way to Grieve, a creative activity workbook for kids and teens on the autism spectrum. I wrote that book solely because I was like, if I can get my foot in there, some somewhere along the line, I can get his book published. And then from that... Yeah. Came the yoga for grief and loss book which was a different story in, its, in itself like I really wanted to go to the Miss Foundation conference which we used to have every two years but I never seemed to really be able to get myself to do it and like the first year was the year he died and I it was too soon the second time we had it was in 2008 and I was pregnant and then the second time the next yeah. time I had a baby again and I didn't want to leave her the next time I was like I have to go and I, I know if I submit a proposal to do a workshop and it's for work, I'll do it. And if they accept it, I have to get there. So now I was like, well, what am I going to do a workshop on? I don't know what to talk about. And I thought, because I did my yoga teacher training before he was born, actually, and had been doing yoga with a lot of the kids that I worked with. So, I mean, I, and teaching in different places. And I was like, maybe I should write, I should do a workshop on yoga for grief and loss and I, so I did, and I went, and I did that, and that was great. But when I went, I did this little, like, t this small PDF booklet that was, like, the handout that people got. And some people were saying, oh, you should put this on your website. Because at that time, I'd already already had my private practice. So that was, like, 2012. And my publisher had said, anything you write, we want to look at it before it's published. And let us get first look. I didn't know if that counted. I didn't know what they meant. You know, and so I said, well, and I wrote that, I wrote my editor. I was like, I wrote this little booklet. I don't know if you need to look at it before I put it on my website as a downloadable thing. And they said, well, can we see it? And I was like, yeah, and I sent it. And then she said, can you write a whole full length book on this? And I was like, oh, of course I can. It was this huge <laughs> undertaking though. I mean, I was like, oh my God, because that other book I wrote, it's a great little, it's a great book, but it just was so easy for me to write. Um, it was based on a little story that I wrote for one of my kids years before Theo. I mean, this was before him, but there was nothing out there on grief and autism. And he had a lot of loss. Yeah. And I, I had wrote him this little story, which was very helpful for him. And other people read it and used it with their stuff. But that little story I turned into that book, which is great. But this was a totally different thing. And it was a lot more effort and a whole big journey really and it turned out to be twice as long as I originally thought it was going to be and then from that book came the, the the chakra book the chakras and grief and trauma and so all of it is kind of just sort of unfolded like in interesting yeah. ways but 
And now that a place where I'm like, I don't, probably I'll never publish that book. The first one, yeah. And if I do, I'll definitely change it. It, it will be different than it, than it is right now. I don't know that I would do it as a memoir. I don't, I don't know what I, I don't know what I would do with it. It's still there, but I don't, I'm at this place now where I don't feel like I have to get that out there. You know, it's interesting how that's mm-hmm. changed. It's like, I don't feel like it's something that I must do anymore. And I'm glad it's there. You know, I'm, I'm glad I, yeah, I yeah. did it. I mean, it came from the blog, but then that going through it and reworking it and being in it again in a different way was really helpful, but it's like your journal, you know, like nobody, I'm not going to publish my journal either. It's the, the, the process itself was, was really helpful. Yeah. And, and that's another thing I wrote a lot, like right in early grief, I wrote a lot and some of it has, I've been, I've shared and some of it I haven't. And, you know, but it's just been interesting how that really, I never planned on any of this stuff. It's just kind of weird. Mm-hmm. I'm not a big owner anyway. That goes back to what you said to what you say to clients about not worrying about trying to do this, do any certain thing or doing something big or whatever, just letting things come naturally as they may or may not. Right. I mean, for me, like one of the biggest, how do I make meaning really comes from, I, I decided, you know, I want, Whatever I do, I want to live a life that he would be proud of, you know, and no matter what I'm doing. And also I do, you know, like acts of kindness, but I don't talk about them. Like I don't really, I don't write about it. I don't put it out there. Little things like that. And they're in his memory and his honor. And I don't worry so much. And it's so different than it was early on. Like I remember, you know, year one, year two, especially two when lots of people didn't reach out again like you get kind of a lot on year one and then nobody in year three like birthdays of his nobody reached out to me and just feeling so devastated and now just like you know I don't need anybody else's anything anymore which is a great place to be because I remember how uh, how awful it was to feel people were forgetting him or forgetting my grief or whatever you know and yeah I don't worry that people are going to forget about him anymore I mean I know they're not and as long as I'm doing what I'm doing and his father's doing what he's doing and his my mom remembers yeah. him and yeah you know, I still get people or dragonflies are a thing there are still people who send me pictures of dragonflies when they see them and it's beautiful like I don't worry any any longer that people will forget him I just don't and it's it's a nice it's it's and this is 18 years late 19 years later, right yeah that's good because I still do. I know you do because do. five years is really early. I mean, I totally remember right. like being like in the five year mark and and listening to people talk about the ten year anniversary or longer and just like my, my mind being blown at like not being able to conceive yeah. of having to live like ten more years. But you don't the same way. Well, and. And just today, for example, I mean, we have the Andy Larson Memorial Concerts coming up. It's two weeks from today. Whoa. We were supposed to have the first Andy Larson Memorial Concert. Now this is back March 2, 2020 again. It was canceled. We had another one scheduled. It ended up not happening. So this is the now the first one. And it's the first time when it was supposed to be March 2020, we sold out every wow. ticket. Every ticket. And now well. we haven't. 
And it just really hurts, right? It just really hurts. It does hurt. Because I really want, I want people to remember him. And I know it's December and I know it's a busy time and there are, people have other commitments and I totally get that. And we certainly just may not sell out, but doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt. No, it it does hurt. It hurts a lot. It hurts a lot. Yeah. And I get now what I, what I could never, I mean, whatever. I wasn't thinking that much about other people. Because it really is about you and how you feel and your right. your love for your child. If I know that nobody is going to be thinking about him the way I think about him. You know, maybe his dad. Right. And I get it. Not even the people right. who are closest to me. And how, how can they, you know? But I do totally get what you're saying. It's really hurtful. It's very hurtful. And I hear these stories from people all the time and... I wish it wasn't that way for grieving people. I wish that we lived in a world where people would just, you know, reach out and, and where they wouldn't be judgmental. Even if they don't understand themselves, I get that you cannot know what this is like if you've not been in it. But like another thing that bothers me is when people say, I can't imagine. Yes, you can. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Try. Can. Try imagine. just for a second. You cannot just for a know, but you can imagine. And they don't yeah. want to because it's so horrific and terrifying. They don't want to imagine what that might be like. And mm-hmm. so, therefore, it's yeah. easier to put it over here and do something else. Or, you know, to have tell ourselves, culture tell the, itself, I guess, that, oh, well, this these chromatically bereaved people or bereaved parents or whatever, have they're the ones with the problem because they can't move on or whatever you know i mean i'm sure you know about the prolonged grief disorder diagnosis yeah i know insult yeah insult it is very insulting it's very insulting like to what at one year if you're still feeling all these things and then but by the way like the criteria itself it's so subjective and it literally said within the criteria if if they are still Missing the person, thinking and talking about the disease. They have disrupted um, function. Okay, whatever. According to their religion or their culture or their social group. Not according to what actually happens in the research to bereaved people and what traumatically bereaved people report is their experience. But what the culture says is appropriate. If we're not doing what they say, then we have this disorder. Even though... Huge groups of people in the research, it shows that certainly long after one year, we're still experiencing yearning and thinking of them and all of these things. Like in grief, not I'm not even talking about the trauma aspect, the grief piece itself, that yearning and pining is the number one criteria. I'm going to yearn and pine for my child until I am dead. Yeah. And that is are. not a disorder. Of you are. You know, and so... No. It's a culturally based thing and they don't ask like, you know, what is your actual experience? I mean, does it suck? Mm-hmm. Yes. Is it pathological? Yeah. No. Right, 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 right. So, you know, yes, it hurts when people don't do the things to let you know that they're remembering him and also your pain. Yeah. Well, I... Thank you so much for talking today, Carla. I have really gotten a lot out of this conversation and so appreciate your time. 
So do you want to leave people with a way that they can see those books or get to know a little bit more about you? Well, a, if you go to my website, all that information is there. And, you know, I don't know when this is going to air, but I will say December 5th, a friend of mine, also a bereaved mother and a colleague, mm-hmm. we are doing a free webinar for bereaved parents. That's an hour and a half just to really talk about, you know, what it's like. People don't get it. Wonderful. Wonderful. And, and for other people, too, when speaking of other people, it's for bereaved parents. We're talking about the grief that comes when your child dies. But it can be helpful for people who want to maybe try to understand this a little bit better to listen in as well. That's happening December 5th. Everything I'm doing will be on my yeah. website. And um, well, it's thank just you again CarlaHelbert.com. So, Carla. so it's Carla with a K. And you can look me up and any contact form that's on my website comes straight to my email so if people have questions they are free, free to ask but yeah um that's yes, kind of the is. only i'm not doing i'm working on um getting some online courses for yoga and grief up and running so hopefully that will be up there soon that people can check out um that's been an ongoing process too. I'm hoping to get some online courses done and and put out there so people can connect that way. But yeah, just my website is the best way to to get a hold of me. Thank you, Marcy, and thank you so much for sharing, Andy, and for doing what you do. I think it's important to have these conversations and for people to be able to hear the different perspectives of grieving people. Yes, yes, it is. Thanks for listening. If you found this helpful and would like to support the podcast, please leave a five-star rating and comment. To help financially, you can type Andy's mom, one word, to the number 53555. This provides a link to GiveButter, which allows donations through PayPal, Venmo, Apple Pay, or credit cards. GiveButter will provide a receipt of your tax-deductible donation. Or you can visit the donation page at andysmom.com donate. Always Andy's Mom is a registered 501c3 and can receive donations through Thriving Financial and Benevity. Marcy loves hearing from listeners. Please feel free to reach out to her via email at marcy at andysmom.com or on the Instagram or Facebook Always Andy's Mom accounts. Sign up for the email list to get weekly episode links as well as pictures of Marcy's guests and their children. Together, let's work to inspire hope one day at a time.